When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. Anyone who's listened to my other show, Dark Poutine, knows that I love cryptids, especially those that are Canadian. Along with some of the cryptids that Morgan will speak about later, there are also some lesser-known Canadian cryptids. Take, for example, the Toronto Tunnel Monster, which I covered in Dark Poutine episode 175. That creature, seen around a tunnel leading into the extensive Toronto sewer system, made one appearance in the summer of 1978, scaring the wits out of a 51-year-old man who'd only give his name as Ernest. He'd been looking after some feral kittens in the tunnel when something startled him. There was a small creature staring at him in the darkness. Ernest described the thing as, quote, long and thin, almost like a monkey, three feet long, large teeth, weighing maybe 30 pounds with slate gray fur. Its eyes were orange and red, slanted. End quote. Finding some weird little entity in a darkened sewer is frightening enough. Had it been me in that tunnel, what happened next might have involved crap and my pants. From the Toronto Sunday Sun, quote, I'll never forget it, Ernest said. It said, go away, go away, in a hissing voice. Then it took off down a long tunnel off to the side. I got out of there as fast as I could. I was shaking with fear, end quote. Ernest turned and scampered out of the tunnel as fast as he could crawl, most likely fearing the thing would come back with reinforcements. Ernest went home and told his wife what he'd seen. She later told the Sun reporter that she believed every word that he'd said. She'd never seen her husband so terrified and was certain he'd not been drinking at all on the day of the sighting. Ernest had made the mistake of telling some others about what he'd seen and word leaked out to the press who then sought him out. Ernest was no attention-seeking liar, though. We never heard from him again. Ernest would be 94 years old today, so odds are he might not be around to explain himself. It isn't clear what Ernest saw, but he's just one of many Canadians who've had encounters with bizarre creatures they've been unable to identify. Next, we'll hear from Morgan as she talks about Bigfoot, Wendigo, and a few other Canadian cryptids. Later on, we'll hear from author W.T. Watson as he talks to us about his book, Canadian Cryptids, from his home in Kitchener, Ontario. You can follow W.T. Watson on Facebook and Twitter, and his books are available on Amazon. Here's Morgan. When many think of Canada, 
much of the world thinks of a friendly, bacon-loving, hockey-driven nation that is known for its fresh air, towering mountains, blue lakes, hot summers, and frozen winters. We think of our national animals and pop culture symbols, the moose, the beaver, the grizzlies, and celebrities like Leslie Nielsen, Dave Foley, John Candy, and Rick Moranis, to name a few. Both Mike and I are born Canadians too, and both went through school hearing basic lessons in biology and animal wildlife that all Canadian children were taught. Both of us are animal lovers and have been our entire lives. So when our own interests and paths in the paranormal took us down a road of unknown animals, it wasn't entirely a surprise. Like many, my introduction to cryptids was Sasquatch, Bigfoot, the bipedal hairy man ape that was said to be the guardian of the woods by many cultures and were talked about as local lore rather than potential fact. When I was a kid, the idea of Bigfoot was, at best, a fun character that was often parodied in cartoons and the occasional horror movie. It wasn't until my first exposure to a Bigfoot story in America, The Legend of Boggy Creek, that caught my attention in the 1972 movie about the folk monster. Even though the film was fictional, the idea it might have been based off a true story both frightened and fascinated me. And I couldn't shake the idea that something like this creature could be real. At that point, I had no idea there were books or other materials from reputable biologists and researchers who were studying these incredible stories. I just knew I was enthralled with the idea that there were these phenomenal unknown animals and that maybe, just maybe, I would one day see one. I don't remember the first time I heard that Canada was home to Bigfoot as well, nor that it was one of the best locations to see one, but I think it's safe to say both Mike and I live on the side of Canada that is essentially Bigfoot's backyard. One well-known case that was featured in a Mental Floss article on July 1st, 2016, featured a creature known as Old Yellowtop. It said, Old Yellowtop is just a blonde Sasquatch who hangs out in Ontario instead of British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest. Originally reported in a newspaper in 1906 and sometimes called a pre-Cambrian shield man, Old Yellowtop is often mistaken for a bear until people get a load of its yellow mane and talent for running around on two legs instead of four. The beast's fur is dark everywhere except its head, and it's said to be a rock, shoulder-length hairdo. For a while, it was sighted about once every 20 to 25 years, but its last cameo was in 1970, when it walked across the road in front of a vehicle carrying a group of miners and almost caused the driver to plunge down a rock cut. Pretty scary stuff, guys. Even though Bigfoot was my introduction to Canadian cryptids, I had no idea how deep the journey would take me and that it was also steeped in spirituality and paranormal phenomena. By this time, I was well on my way, on my paranormal journey, and although I had a basic understanding of Canadian lore, much of it I dismissed as simply that, lore, stories, fairy tales, right? My main source of interest was in psychic phenomena and hauntings, 
ESP and life after death, not chasing characters in a storybook. Little did I know that my journey would soon intersect with this lore and give me a major wake-up call. During the time I was writing the first edition of my book, Teaching the Living, From Heartbreak to Happiness in a Haunted Home, I dove into the story of a dear friend of mine, Matt Spiran, and his encounter with a wraith-like monster that was connected to the Wendigo, a malicious First Nations cannibal spirit. Little did I know, this story would lead me to discover that I live in a very short distance from one of the most famous Wendigo stories in the world, the case of Swift Runner, a Cree trapper who murdered and ate his family and was the first legal hanging in the province of Alberta. Listen to our two-part Wendigo episode, Podcast 2, with Chad Lewis to hear more about this incredible and terrifying story. Once again, I was thrust into lore for me had started out as fiction, but quickly was becoming reality as I interviewed person after person who had encountered such creatures, and none of them were telling fairy tales. Canada is a plethora of some of the most incredible lore I have ever read and investigated, and it has become a new passion for me. Perhaps one of the most frightening cases being the terrifying Wahila, a four-foot dog-like monster known to tear the heads from its victims. It sounds like lore and did to me as well, until you realize that this, among many other cases considered simply legend, have a paper trail of police work, newspapers, court documents, and body counts that are absolutely not fiction. Case in point, the Nahani Valley, perhaps the most famous case of the Wahila in the country, Wahilas are said to be gigantic wolves with wider heads, spread out toes, long white fur, similar to the prehistoric dire wolves. They are said to hang out in the Northwest Territories, specifically the remote Nahani Valley. This area is so isolated, one can only travel in and out by plane or foot, and it is known simply as the Valley of the Headless Men. Due to more than a few cases, of decapitated corpses turning up there. All of these murders have been blamed on one creature, the Wahila. A scary story around a campfire, but just as in the case of Swift Runner, people are nonetheless dead, and the mystery is nonetheless unsolved. Canada is intertwined with folklore, and no matter where you go, it is swimming within the Canadian culture yet it is often under-talked about and dismissed. In my experience, after having lived here my entire life, Canadian cryptids and lore is not something highly talked about, and nor is it something taken too seriously. This is a funny situation because we have some of the highest reports of cryptids in the world, from Bigfoot in the mountains, to Caddy the sea monster, to Dogman in Alberta, and the Canadian lizard man. All of these creatures have been seen, documented, reported, and then, well, that's about it. So what's going on? Why doesn't BC have a Bigfoot festival? Why don't we have a lake celebration for Caddy? It's a good question, because Canada lacks the same level of celebration present in the U.S. around their amazing creatures. The Van Meter Visitor Festival in Iowa, the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant, the Dogman Symposium, nothing of this nature ever sees the light of day in this vast country. And for me, 
this is, as a paranormal researcher, thick in the middle of it, still a bit of a mystery. Is it simply a lack of interest, apathy, or an unwillingness to acknowledge something is really out there? Even if you don't believe in the Lugaru, sea monsters, or great hairy ape men, wouldn't it just be fun? Canada is full of some incredible stories to explore, some terrifying, some funny, and others that are great around a campfire. But what about those that are an embedded part of our legal history and the very development of the country itself? Where do they go? Why are they not discussed when a huge portion of Canadians have ties to or are experiencing something incredible? In my experience, the majority of the people who report such cryptid sightings are reliable, hardy people, not seeking fame or fortune, but genuine individuals who want to share their story in an educated way. Many eyewitnesses are hunters, trappers, park rangers, and officers who are familiar with the vast Canadian wilderness and are reliable individuals with compelling testimony. You'd think that with such important and crucial ties to the First Nations, we would be paying more attention to these stories as they surface, seeing as how many of them were first reported long before the arrival of any Europeans. But to this day, you really do need to dig a bit before uncovering some of Canada's most fascinating monsters. But I can tell you, it's really worth the dig. So today, Mike and I are really glad to welcome a fellow Canadian, which is not entirely common on supernatural circumstances. I think we've had people from all over the U.S., the U.K., and all the people from everywhere. Um, and we have uh, this wonderful guest from right here in, in Canada, from Ontario. So welcome. It is so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I was born in the United States, uh, and I am a now a permanent resident of Canada. I've been here for a couple of years now, but uh, I really, I love it here. I really do. Well, we've we've adopted you now, so yeah. <laughs> okay. So so I'm now officially Canadian. Yeah, Good. exactly. Okay. You're officially Canadian. Okay. You have to kiss the beaver in the Mountie hat at some point. Well, I got some beaver stories for you for later, so I'm looking oh. forward to those. <laughs> we we are we're gonna we're gonna put you to that, I think. That's <laughs> yeah, hold you to that. Um so let's just get this started because there's so much to cover here. Mm. And I lo love the fact that you have done this brand new book on Canadian lore canadian cryptids mm -hmm. and this great book called canadian monsters and mysteries um you've off but you've authored a bunch of books on this mm -hmm. subject of of strange things um mysteries in the mist phantom black dogs tell us a little bit about how your interest really got started in all of this a long time ago in a galaxy far far oh uh, wait <laughs> yeah. that's somebody else's line yeah. um, he really <laughs> is a man after our own heart mike <laughs> actually <laughs> Um, I've actually uh, been interested in, you know, what I call the paranormal, which basically means anything science can't prove, prove um, since I was in elementary school. Um, I, my father had a, a up close and personal UFO encounter in the 1950s 
which he was very happy to to tell me about once I got old enough to uh, to understand what he was talking about. Uh, he was in des- he was serving in the in the U.S. Air Force uh, in the desert outside of San Bernardino, California. Um, he had an encounter with a, a UFO that came down um, over basically over his car. Um, and, you know, purple lights, portals, things moving around inside, all that fun, classic UFO stuff from the 1950s, right? Um, didn't actually encounter any, you know, otherworldly beings, but um, that encounter really shaped his mind about, uh, you know, about, about strange things. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, he was a a strong proponent of the idea that there was actually a UFO base in the whole country of Texas where we lived, um, you know, and, and uh, he wasn't opposed to talking about things like ghosts and Sasquatch and so forth. So, you know, I started off as kind of a UFO geek when I was a kid, but uh, by the time I was in sixth grade, I had read um, uh, Ivan Sanderson's Abominable Snowman, The Legend Comes to Life, and, you know, all however many hundred pages there were, um, and, you know, with my dictionary, you know, close at hand, so I could look up anything I didn't understand. Um, so, I basically, I've been a paranormal geek my entire life. I've, I've always loved this stuff, and uh, uh, when I moved to Canada, well, let me back up for a minute. Um, I had published a novel um, called um, Hunting the Beast, which was based in Black Dog lore, uh, the lore of the Phantom Black Dog. Um, the publisher that I had published it with went out of business. Uh, I proposed it to Beyond the Fray Publishing, which Morgan and I both know well. Mm. Um, and they were kind of like, oh, I don't know, uh, we're not really doing fiction right now. Um, and about six months later, they contacted me and said, well, maybe we are doing fiction. So um, <laughs> they have they've actually published the novel. Um, and shortly after publishing the novel, Shannon Legros asked me if I would be interested in or if I had uh, the research or the wherewithal to do a book on phantom black dogs. Uh, and I said, well, as a matter of fact, I have rather extensive notes here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I dove down that rabbit hole for a little while and and, uh, and did uh, my first book. It was called Phantom Black Dogs Walkers the Liminal Way, um, which, you know, my basic um, theorem or proposal for that book was that Phantom Black Dog lore is not just indigenous to England, but you can also find Phantom Black Dog stories in the United States and in Canada and even um, south of the border. Um, and there's a rather extensive section on, on Phantom Black Dogs in, in South and Central America. Um, while I was doing that book, um, you know, of course, I was doing the podcast circuit. And I was talking to a number of different, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and I was talking to a number of different uh, podcasters and uh, uh, we were talking about, uh, I went on one show where I was talking, uh, where we were talking about uh, signs of uh, paranormal or spiritual incursions. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking about anomalous lights and those kinds of things. And I, I had mentioned uh, something about some, some fog encounters with phantom black dogs. And I got to wondering if fog was a thing, you know, in the paranormal. 
And I started to do some research and I wrote another book called Mysteries in the Mist, Mist, Fog and Clouds and the Paranormal, because again, I went down the rabbit hole and found tons of just fascinating stuff. Don't you love uh, how the paranormal is kind of like that? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you yeah. grab a thread and you start pulling and start pulling off on you it. Go. The next thing you know, you, <laughs> yeah, the next thing you know, you have, have like enough, uh, enough wool in your lap to, to knit a sweater, you know? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I wrote this book, Mysteries in the Mist, which turned out to be pretty popular. Um, and uh, it, uh, it, it's a it's a compendium book. Uh, it's like if there's anything in the paranormal that you're interested in, there's probably something in Mysteries in the Mists about that. So fast forward a little bit. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I'd moved to Canada in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. That was uh, quite the adventure in and of itself. We got the job offer uh, for my spouse in um August and we moved in September. Wow. So uh, we had very little time to get this together. We threw everything in a box basically and shipped it across the border. Um, and of course, as you know, you know, I, I uh, got here and, and um, I was unable to work for a while. Um, so I put my mind to, uh, you know, looking up, looking to see, well, you know, I'm in Canada now. I wonder what sort of strange stuff happens here. Lots. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I discovered that, uh, you know, again, I went down the rabbit hole um, and ended up with a sweater and, <laughs> and wrote another book called Canadian Monsters and Mysteries. I found that there was so much stuff, um, uh, you know, in, in Canadian high strangeness that there were things that I had to leave out of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, uh, I'm, I'm not doing Sasquatch in this book um, because there's tons of Canadian Sasquatch sightings. Um, so many that, you know, I just, I, I, that is a book of itself. And that in fact will be my next book. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in, <clears throat> I'm interested in the hairy man, not only from the the aspect of a, you know, flesh and blood creature, but also, you know, from a more uh, First Nations or shamanic perspective where they see this as a, a being that walks between worlds. Um, so I, I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking specifically at stories in Canada that are not in British Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, you know, everybody, you know, all of the American authors that have written books about uh, Sasquatch have, you know, focused in, you know, the Pacific Northwest or maybe down South or whatever. And if they talk about Canada, it's almost always British Columbia, right? Yeah. So I'm focusing, you know, Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, and some of the other provinces. Um, And there's tons of stuff if you go looking for it. Absolutely. Um, And Nordeg in Alberta here is... Mm -hmm. It has been so active and even down around yep, um, yep, Banff yep. and Calgary, mm-hmm. um, places like that, Jasper, and even mm-hmm. somewhat close to Edmonton. Um, yep. So, I mean, yeah, there is there is so much that is just not or doesn't seem to be really talked about in the same way that yeah. it's talked about in the U.S. Have you noticed that as well, that there's sort of a, a, a an attitude or, or outlook difference between the two countries? Yeah, I have a theory that that people in the United States believe that when they cross the Canadian border, all there is is like an ice flow, um, that, <laughs> yeah. that, or a, you know, a, a glacier that reaches all the way up to the Arctic Circle. Yeah. Um, 
what people don't realize is that Canada, Canada, sorry, that Canada is, is the second largest country in the world. That it has well over ten thousand lakes that are over three square kilometers. That it has the longest shoreline in the entire world. You know, and yeah. that, and that. Most of the people in Canada live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. So there are vast swaths of wilderness area here that, you know, I can go two hours, you know, north of where I am now and be, you know, in the bush. Um, You know, and and that's just uh, that's something that people just don't grasp. Plus, you have, you know, you have, you know, Canada has its own Lazarus species, um, there was a, uh, there's a species called the wood bison. It is the largest land animal in North America by weight. That was actually declared in, extinct uh, in the early part of the 1900s, and then was rediscovered in 1957 by an Alberta wildlife officer who was doing an overflight of an area, and found a herd of 200 of these things wandering around out there. You know pretty as you please so you can hide all kinds of things up here yeah. and nobody would ever know it um so i, I just i once i i started to understand that and understand some of the geography up here it was just so apparent to me that there's so much good stuff that that um, you know is available up here uh is by way of high strangeness that that people just aren't seeing because you know everything's so many of the authors that write about this stuff are focused in in the united states you know or or you know uh, uh great britain so <clears throat> Yeah, you're you're totally right. And what's interesting too, I think about about Canada and exactly what you said, uh, is the fact that there is there's this wild aspect, you know, where you can be in. I mean, Edmonton is the northernmost populated city in in Canada, and mm-hmm. you know here you know, here we are, you know, you come and we've got the, you know, the biggest mall, one of the biggest malls in the world, we've got, you know, these massive attractions, and so on and so forth. But you drive an hour north, and mm-hmm. you're in another world, right? yeah. <laughs> you know, really, really quickly. And so I, I don't know, for me, I think it just lends more credence that there's just aspects to these areas that we just we have no idea about and so much of Canada really is undiscovered um mm-hmm. I've got I work with a, a colleague she lives 45 minutes from me on a an acreage and she is surrounded by these really dense thick woods and mm-hmm. they've lived there for quite a long time and she's even said there's pieces of her own woods that they have not been able to get to just because of the nature of the of, of the denseness of the forest and and so on and so forth and it's full of it's full of animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it just goes to say that it go, goes to show that, you know, this this place or there's so many areas that are just so, so untouched and so ready for this exploration. But so let, let's get into this, because you've covered some really interesting things in this book. And some of them I hadn't hadn't realized or heard about before. And one of the ones that caught me <laughs> right off the bat, one of the, the cryptids, what you talk about the, the mammoth. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I don't think a lot of people realize that, you know, there, there's a potential for these, for these creatures still, still kicking around. Sure. You know, so like I said, you know, wood bison, that's, you know, that's really all you have to say. You can mm-hmm. hide anything in the Canadian forest, <laughs> you know? Um, so 
there is, uh, you know, I mean, I don't think that people quite understand, you know, particularly people south of the border here, quite understand how thick the bush is here. You know, now in the wintertime, of course, you know, it becomes stick land and, uh, you know, you get the snow and all that kind of stuff. But in the summertime, I'm, I'm looking out my window now and, you know, I'm looking out past the houses that I'm looking at and I can see patches of woodland, you know, and that stuff is so thick that you'd have trouble making your way through it. If I wanted to hide a Sasquatch next to my house, I could. Yeah. Um, because there's, you know, when you have woods, you know, wherever they are, even in populated areas, they are thick. Um, so <clears throat> the, um, the mammoth stories actually are more based on, on tracks than anything else. Um, there was a, a story of, a, a you know, a, a hunter and, and his party who I believe in the 1800s who were uh, out hunting for moose or whatever it was that they were hunting for and came across these enormous tracks um, that were sort of circular in shape. And, you know, they, you know, this is an experienced party of people who know animals and they know how to track. They know the tracks of the various creatures and the, the many permutations that they take. They literally have to do this stuff to survive. And they don't recognize this track. And when the, uh, the, the hunter asked his uh, native companions what it was, they told him flat out, it's a mammoth track. Wow, like, so there what? was no doubts for them at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they knew exactly what it was. You know, and, and this is something that, that recurs throughout the book is, you know, everybody's like, oh, my gosh, what is this? What is that? Blah, blah, blah. And then they go to the native people and the native people say, oh, well, it's a, a mammoth or it's a, you know, giant snake or whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, you know, same they, story they, with Sasquatch, they, like where, yeah, yeah. The, you know, people have, uh, the, when the European settlers came in and they were looking at these tracks and whatnot, and they, or they thought that the, the, uh, you know, the First Nations people were out of their mind. And, yeah. and you know, it until wasn't long until later, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> until they started seeing these things, yeah. So, same thing, this this, this guy is like, okay, well, uh, what what is this? And they're like, oh, it's a mammoth track. He's like. And, and of course, their react, the, the European reaction was, oh, you got to be kidding me, right? Um, so there's that story of the, the mammoth possibly, you know, still existing. But then we go to the, the uh, uh, Wrangell. Uh, it's on the border between Yukon and Alaska. Um, and there's this really bizarre story from one of Nick Bredford's books about a, a young woman who was, uh, you know, was an amateur nature photographer who really loved to photograph mountains. And so she was setting up to photograph Mount Wrangell. And she heard a disturbance in the bush and turned to see what to her looked like a baby mammoth oh, wow. stomping, down, stomping down the trail. The really weird part about this story, though, is, you know, because it was only about four or five feet high, you know, it wasn't like the mammoth mammoth, you know, that we think of, you know, the giant elephantine creature, right? It's like a baby mammoth. It looked like a, I don't know what you call a baby mammoth. I don't know what you call a baby elephant, but it was <laughs> like a like a baby mammoth, right? Yeah. So this thing is running down the, down the trail, and she sees it disappear in a cloud of black smoke. 
Um, that story was also in Mysteries in the Mist, by the way. <laughs> of course, yeah. And she's like, okay, so what are we looking at here? Are we looking at, uh, you know, a, a, a time rift? You know, are are we looking at uh, something like a stone tape theory thing where she just happened to trigger this this memory of the land that showed her this this baby mammoth running along down the road, down the path? Um, You know, I I mean, you know, uh, those kinds of stories always remind me to either of you know, the BBC show and primeval. Uh, I don't watch it, but I've heard of it. So the basic premise of the show is that there are these anomalies that open, that what they call anomalies. We call them portals or window areas or whatever. These anomalies that, that open and, and these prehistoric creatures come through, right? And their job is to try and get the prehistoric creature to go back through the anomaly before it closes. Um, <clears throat> that's kind of in a nutshell. Yeah, and you wonder, uh, you know, if something like that, doesn't actually exist and you know occasionally you get like uh mammoths or you know that come through and then go back through or uh there's a story in the book about you know in the extinct creatures section about a a party of hunters that actually tracked and saw what they swore was a ceratosaurus um up in the the tundra area right this thing was a ceratosaurus for those who don't know is is one of those bipedal um early pre-t-rex type of of critters yeah um you know it was probably 30 feet long or so it wasn't small by any any stretch of the imagination but it wasn't t-rex size you know but it was a large carnivorous dinosaur um they had been hunting again they had spotted a moose and the moose alerted and it wasn't alerting to them. It took off like a bat out of Hades, um, and they and they saw this thing, um, and they decided that discretion was the better part of valor, and they were going to vacate the premises pretty quickly yeah. after that. Um, but they saw it. They went back to their uh, their hunting outpost and and gathered up like the local priest and stuff and went back out there. They found tracks for this thing, like these giant three-toed tracks that went along the the the, uh, the riverbank. Um, and uh, so one of the people in the party tried to interest the the governor general of that area. This was back in the 1800s. Um, uh, in you know launching a massive uh search for this creature and of course they got laughed right out of the room um so he said well tack with you then he went back to france got a letter from the priest uh, that had been in on this initial shenanigan that a group of native people and he had seen this thing again um in the same area so uh you know the interesting thing to me about that was you know there's not something that you could mistake for a dinosaur that lives up in northern Canada. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, either these people were lying through their teeth or they saw a dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah. Now, then you have to ask yourself, okay, so where did the dinosaur come from? You know, it's hard to believe that there's a relic species of dinosaur running around <laughs> northern right. Canada. <laughs> you know, I mean, just from the the, the whole uh, you know, reptile uh, standpoint, you know, a, a creature like that would have to have a place to uh, basically hibernate um, in the wintertime. 
Um, and there's just not that many places to do that out on the open tundra. Um, so, yeah, that was a, a, just another fascinating story that I encountered while I was uh, doing the research for the book. But Yeah, what I love about this is it actually ties into a, a, a bit of a, a, a legend or, or story in, here in Alberta. Um, we, for the audience, we've got one of the the greatest deposits of, of fossils in the world in uh, Drumheller here. And uh, with the, the uh, Tyrrell Museum that's that's in Drumheller and whatnot, literally the leading experts in, in dinosaur fossils. And I heard a story, this was a, a good number of years ago now, and I've, I've heard this multiple times from a few people, where they have been out in Drumheller in the Badlands. And the first story actually came from a couple of archeologists who had been out and, and digging and whatnot, and it was getting late. And they heard what they described as footsteps, huge footsteps that, and at first they thought it was an earthquake. And they realized really soon that it was, it was actually footsteps that were coming closer to them. And they said it sounded like a massive animal um, that was why, and I mean, there's, there's nothing out there in Drumheller like that. I mean, it's, these are, these are badlands, you know, for mm -hmm. the U.S., U.S. listeners, you know, you think of, think of Montana, badlands. Um, and it was, it always caught my attention because, you know, we, we think about things like residual energy, for instance, um, mm -hmm. you know, what's the shelf life on something like residual energy? I don't know. You know, I don't mm -hmm. think anybody really knows what that is. So it's, it is an interesting thought, not only on the, the, the standpoint of, you know, perhaps we're seeing these sort of time slips back and forth, but um, e even the idea that, you know, maybe, maybe we're seeing, or people are seeing some some kind of apparition or or something mm -hmm. like that. I mean, there's there's a number of different rabbit holes you can go down with this. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and you know, it's certainly you know the residual energy idea. Um, you know, I, I ran across that, of course, in my research for phantom black dogs because that's certainly one of the theories about what these beings are. But um, uh, you know there doesn't seem to be, or, or there's no logical reason why there would be a time limit on this, just depending on uh, whatever it was that actually created this residual energy in the first place. Now, what we associate in, in you know, uh, with, with that kind of thing in, in uh, you know, ghost hunting and haunting is, is, you know, the idea that some sort of traumatic emotional event happened um, that imprinted itself on the ether, so to speak. And, you know, if you don't mind my using that phrase. Um, and certain things or certain people, certain time periods seem to trigger that, uh, that energy again. Uh, you know, now dinosaurs are you know, supposedly extinct, but, uh, you know, I mean, the, I don't see any reason why, you know, a, a dinosaur that, uh, say had encountered some sort of traumatic death, which probably was pretty common back in that time <laughs> period, uh, wouldn't leave behind some kind of residual energy and maybe be seen. But, uh, then you come into the problem of, okay, so how did it leave tracks? <laughs> well, well, yeah. And there's yeah. the thing it's, it's, you know, if, if these tracks are, you know, if these are real and that this is happening, then you've got something that is, that is physically manipulating the environment. And what's interesting mm -hmm. to me is that, you know, if you, if you look at 
where they're at now with a, like the understanding of of time and that everything happens in the now and that there wasn't you know there is no past there is no future everything's in the now moment um you know and that we that we can shift that and we can alter that reality that you know is is that possible and it, it seems like you know, such a bizarre concept, I think, for a lot of people, because they think, well, you know, that was it was millions of years ago. What you know, what are you talking about? But, but you know, our, with our understanding of of quantum physics now, well, no, there was every everything happens in the now. So there was, <laughs> you know, what is time, yeah. right? What is time? And there there comes the big, you know, the kicker of the question. Yeah, and then when you start yeah. to talk about quantum mechanics, you start to talk about multi dimensions, and then you know. So then it's entirely possible that there's a dimension where dinosaurs still exist. Yeah. And what happens if that dimension bumps into our, our dimension for a little while mm -hmm. and creates a little hole somewhere <laughs> where, you know, dinosaurs go traipsing around until, you know, they decide to go back to their own dimension. Uh, and yes, the, the concept of time, you know, I mean, doesn't really exist in the other world. Uh, you know, if you read you know, fairy lore at all. Um, time does very strange things when people come into contact with those particular spirits, um, you know, and, and in their particular uh, milieu, their dimension, if you want to call it that. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, there's all kinds of, of fun theories that, that you can expound that, uh, that help to explain these things. But the fun of it is, the theorizing anyway sure, i mean absolutely. i think that part of the reason that, that one of the things that that i've said on you know a number of occasions is if you don't have a uh a tolerance for mystery you're not going to do well in the paranormal field right. <laughs> yeah i mean there's so many people out there that want to make everything like a flesh and blood creature and we're going to go and take our rifles and hunt it down or whatever and there's just so much weird stuff that you know that's not going to happen. <laughs> it's true. Well, we recently did a show uh, um, with uh, Eric Mantel. We were talking about dogmen and the Alberta dogman here. And yeah, um, you I know, want to set, set some time aside to listen to that one because oh, that's I one of my areas of fascination. <laughs> it, it is for us too. And you know, as I say, we've got we've got one that here that's been absolutely amazing. And and in the book, um, you you go into talking about the Rougarou. Um, mm -hmm. And in the Rougarou in relation to Canada, which fascinates me because I had not heard of this. So what's, yeah. what is the history here? Because like both Mike and I were really interested in that. So the yeah, so the Rougarou is actually the, the southern variant for this. Uh, that that would be more Louisiana. Uh, the uh, the werewolf of, of lore in, in Quebec, which is uh, French Canada, uh, is called the Lougarou. Right. Um it, it looks like loop guru and that's a lot of people will pronounce it that way. But uh, I, I think your French is supposed to be Lou guru. Um, mm. I don't pretend to be an expert in French either. So <laughs> I, covered, <laughs> I, co I covered the, the Lou guru on uh, my other podcast, dark okay. and I'm going yeah. through your book and it looks like, Holy smokes. Have I ever covered a lot of what you've already talked about? And yeah, about yeah. half of what you haven't. So I'm thinking you and I need to have a conversation after this yeah, about my other I, show. I, I, somebody commented when, uh, you know, when the book first came out that, you know, you could probably do several volumes of this. And I'm sure that's that's the case. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, I didn't get so deeply into, say, newspaper articles and stuff. Uh, and there's all kinds of weird stuff in, in the newspapers. <laughs> Isn't so, that true? Um, but the Lucaru is is uh, is the French variant of a, of a werewolf. Um, and it's quite a lot different from um, the... Uh, the werewolf that we think of, you know, the werewolf of horror movies, which is more based in the uh, the kind of Germanic legends about werewolves. Uh, the Lugaru uh, most frequently uh, becomes cursed to become a wolf at night as a result of a religious failing. Now, you remember that the French are predominantly Roman Catholic, so yeah. uh, right. things like not going to confession, not not going to mass regularly, you know, blasphemy, that sort of thing, can uh, can bring around bring about this curse of becoming a Lugaru. Um, the Lugaru is not permanently fated to be a Lugaru. Uh, there's a you know there's a time constraint. Uh, sometimes it's 90 days, sometimes it's a year and a day. Uh, you know, very seldom is it is it longer than that. It's it's kind of like God has cursed you with this so that uh, you can can repent. And, and recover your, you know, recover your uh, your lost ways before you, you know, end up in a bad place. So, well, I'm in a big um, trouble then. So, <laughs> you and me both. Yeah. Uh, if my uh, if my uh, you know Catholic school teachers from from early on you know met me now, they'd be horrified. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so uh, the other big difference between the Germanic type Lugaru and the, uh, the, or the Germanic werewolf and the, and the, uh, the, the French Lugaru is that, um, the Lugaru is, is less likely to attack people. Hmm. Um, now your, your cattle, your, you know, sheep and livestock and all that kind of stuff are, are fair game, but, uh, it is less likely to, uh, to, uh, actually attack a person. Um, and the interesting thing is that the curse can be broken if someone uh, encounters the Lugaru, draws blood, and uses their, their Christian name. Huh. Um, and, and, and the curse will be broken. As long as neither the former Lugaru or the person who rescued them ever says anything about it. If either of them says, you know, so much as, oh, so-and-so is a Lugaru at one point, then the curse is reinstated and, and that person is, is cursed again. So it's very odd, very magical kind of uh, uh, thinking because, you know, there's power in, in the spoken word. Um, and there are, of course, a number of, of, of stories about the Lugaru, probably, you know, some of which... Uh, one of, a, one of the ones that I encountered was off of a CBC radio broadcast that uh, this uh, fellow was a hunter or was apprenticing to be a hunter. And the, the person he was apprenticing with actually was a Lugaru. That's and quite the, the teacher. <laughs> yeah, the, the teacher was a Lugaru. Um, and he, the teacher, the Lugaru, actually gave this boy a, uh, a talisman, basically. So that he would, so that the Lugaru would not come after him at all. You know, there was no chance of him coming after him at all. You know, mistaking him for livestock or whatever. Right? Um, 
And as it turns out, as the story goes on, you know, they're, they're camping with another person and this guy becomes a wolf and he goes running around and does all the stuff. Um, you know, he comes back and of course he's exhausted in the morning. And, and uh, you know, as it turns out, this young man actually does the, uh, the blood draw and the speaking of his Christian name and breaks the curse for his teacher. Um, so it's just a very classic Luke story. Now, in another less classic uh, story, there's a story of a, a fellow who was, uh, I think they called them habitants. Uh, it's kind of like a homesteader um, in, uh, in, in Quebec. And uh, he, got, he got word from the local, um, I think it was the, the, the postal service, basically, of the time. The fellow drove by in a sled and, and dropped off the mail and such. Um, that his, this, this person's neighbor, like three miles down the road or whatever, uh, was on death's door. Um, he was going to pass very soon. Of course, there was no priest in that area uh, for like 50 miles. So this fellow, being a very devout person, um, jumps into his his sled and and you know whips up his horses, takes off to go and and uh, you know at least uh, you know bless this fellow with holy water, pray with him, maybe get uh, you know his last words and that sort of thing. Um, you know, do what he can to help ease his transition. He's running down. He's uh, sledding toward his neighbor's home, and this massive wolf comes out of the the uh, uh, the the woods, and he recognizes immediately that this is a Luguru because guess what? Glowing red eyes. Oh Where no! Have we heard that before. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is a, also a common thing in Phantom Black Dog wars. The whole whole glowing red eye thing. You know, it tells you that you're seeing a supernatural creature. Um. So this fellow, you know, being a, a very game individual, apparently whips his horses up and takes off. And the, the Lugaroo takes off after him and chases him the entire way to this cabin where he's going. Um, you know, and, and of course, this fellow is filled with dread and sure that he's, you know, if, if you know, his sled overturns or anything, he's going to be eaten because this Lugaroo doesn't look happy, right? Gets to the cabin, <clears throat> flings open the door pulls the table over and slaps his prayer book down in front of the in front of the entrance and dares the Lugaroo to try to get in past that right and you know the the wolf of course is is you know repelled by uh, by this you know the holiness of this person and by the you know the holiness of the book um and so this fellow uh, you know tends to his neighbor, um, you know, reads prayers over him, blesses him with holy water, hears his last words, and he passes, the, the neighbor passes away. It's a and by phenomenal the time, story, you know? <laughs> yeah, and by, and by the time the, uh, the, uh, this habitant person comes back out to his sled and looks around, this, this Luguru has disappeared. Um, but, you know, I mean, again, yeah, yeah, scary story. Now, I'm minded of dog, dog man or man wolf stories uh, when I read stuff like this. You know, this, this thing is chasing him. But let's face it, a wolf unencumbered is going to be able to run down a sled being pulled by a horse. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, 
eventually the horse will tire enough to where the wolf will be able to catch up. You know, so just like in the man wolf stories where we see these things charge people, you know, it seems like this behavior is more territorial, like get out, of, get off my turf than it is, uh, you know, aggressive to, you know, I'm going to eat you. Um, so I, I'm, I, I kind of think this Lugaru was just, you know, basically you're in my forest and what the heck were you doing? But I'm always willing to give, you know, cryptid canids uh, the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> <laughs> that stuff is so fun. Like I'm looking at the contents of your book here. And you mentioned large white humanoids. Um, mm -hmm. What the heck is that? I, it's yeah, something that I've not heard of. Now, I, like I said, I didn't cover Sasquatch in this book, but there are several stories that I ran across, uh, mostly in Lon Strickler's Phantoms Monsters blog, if you know that, uh, know that uh, yeah. source, um, where people in Canada and various places in Canada and uh, uh, encounter there's a story that uh, comes out of, um, I think it's out of BC, actually, um, where they lived in a small town, wasn't much to do. Um, and they had relatives come in from Australia to visit. Now, one of the things that this fellow's parents always did was take a hike out to uh, an abandoned settlement that uh, was kind of a ghost town that, that was in the area. Um, you know, it was a nice hike, uh, lots of nature stuff. And, um, you know, you get to, got to see the ghost town at the end and then hike back and all that stuff. You hmm. know, it's, it's just, again, there wasn't much to do. So that was something to do with, with visiting relatives. Um, so this, this fellow was, uh, was a child at the time of the sighting. And uh, his father, he was starting to get tired, I guess. And his father picked him up, put him on his shoulders. So he had, you know, the bird's eye view of everything, right? And they're walking along and they're they're walking past uh, these berry bushes. Uh, berries again. Uh, we're, I'm always running into berries wherever yeah. I go. <laughs> so he's, uh, he's looking out over this berry bush and he sees this massive white creature. Um, and he's like, oh, look, a polar bear, because it's the only thing he can think of to, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that it even comes close to resembling, right? Um, and, you know, of course, the parents tell him to shut up. There's no polar bears in British Columbia, <laughs> right? right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, typical reaction to a witness, right? You know, <laughs> I'll just shut up. You didn't see that. It was a bear. Um, so, you know, I mean, a Sasquatch researcher would hear that and think, oh, well, you know, he saw a Sasquatch. But then we come to other stories in Canada, in places like Ontario, where, uh, you know, a group of, of young people are exploring, or not Ontario, where was it? It was um, uh, Newfoundland or Nova Scotia. I don't remember the exact province it was in. It was over in the Atlantic, uh, Atlantic area. They're exploring a, um, a former meatpacking plant uh, that is now derelict. So they're doing kind of the urban exploration sure. thing. Because again, small town, nothing to do. Hey, let's go check out the local, you know, spooky place, right? Uh, except they ignored one very important thing. This fellow had a friend who was a native person who told him, whatever you do, don't go near that place. Jeez. Oh, now, 
being an animist myself, uh, you know, and and having some interesting experiences with, uh, you know, shamanic journeying and that sort of thing. Um, if a native person, First Nations person in an area tells me, don't go to a place, um, my response is going to be, okay, yeah. um, I'm not going to go there unless, uh, you know, there's a way that I can do it safely. Is there an offering that I should take to, to, you know, to go there safely? Is there some little ritual I should perform? And if they tell me, no, you don't want to go there, I won't go there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I've been in, I've lived in Arizona. I've been in the superstition mountains and I've been in some places where it was pretty obvious I wasn't supposed to be. And I got the heck out, you know, because this is how people disappear. Sure. <laughs> it's so you true. Know? It's so true. Um, so, you know, if, if the, the local native people tell you, don't go to a place, the, the, the next question is, okay, well, why? And if they won't really tell you that, then you can say, okay, well, is there a way I can go there safely? And if they say no, don't go there. You know, this is my public service announcement to your, your, <laughs> your listeners. So these guys ignored this. They went off to this meatpacking plant. Um, and they got the bejeebies scared out of them because there was something rattling around in this plant, um, which they didn't get a good look at. There's a lot of, of sort of poltergeisty kind of activity with, you know, banging, uh, banging sheets of metal and footsteps and, and all that sort of stuff. And they didn't see anything until they finally just got so spooked that they took off running down the road. Um, this young man looks behind him and sees this large white humanoid figure you know, chasing them down the road. Um, uh, you know, and of course they, they lit the afterburners and got the heck out of there. Um, and whatever it was, you know, again, it seems like a territorial issue, you know, came to a certain point and stopped chasing them. You know, so there's, there's three or four of these stories in the book. I don't, uh, I don't recall all of them mm-hmm. off the top of my head, but, um, you know, the, the descriptions, uh, the the third one was probably the one that had the best description. These two young people were playing video games um, in in a home, and uh, something started banging on the side of the house. And they were like, uh, "It's my, you know, it's it's the the girls from the neighborhood trying to get a sure. you know, get a rise out of us, right?" So they ignored it. They went back to playing video games again, boom, boom, boom on the side of the house. And they're like, all right, well, yeah. So they tried to sneak out of the house and sneak up on whoever was doing it. There was nobody there. Right. So they're like, okay, well, they went back in the house, started playing video games. Same thing happened. Bang, bang, bang on the side of the house. They're like, all right, we're going to get you this time. Right. So they, 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 they did a two-pronged approach. You know, one of them went out the back of the house, and one of them went out the front of the house. They came around on the side, and there was nothing there. But as they're standing there, there's an abandoned uh, house off, uh, you know, a couple hundred meters probably from where they were, maybe not even that far. And they see something moving in the house. So like, ah, they're in there, right? I don't know how they got from here to there in that short a period of time, but they're in there. So they go over to this house, they start going through it. And they have this encounter with this tall, white, wraith-like uh, humanoid uh, that they were like, okay, we're going back to the house to play yeah, video games. No so they were out of there, right? Um, so, you know, 
there, there's a part of me that's like, okay, well, maybe they're encountering Sasquatches, but why is it white? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of of Sasquatches being, uh, you know, gray. You know, having having a sort of a gray color to them, uh, maybe because of advanced age or whatever. Um, but white is not a, a color you normal normally encounter in Sasquatch encounters. But you know, I've I've been through dozens of them um, in research for for my newest book the one that will be out later. Um, and I have yet to encounter anything. The closest I've come across is, is uh, brown with kind of gray uh, highlights or, or guard hairs. Um, white is not a typical color that you see in Sasquatch. Uh, now, maybe the Yeti up in the Himalayan mountains or whatever are white, but these guys typically aren't. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, that, that uh, you know, that... Um, kind of militates against this being a Sasquatch is this, this description of the thing is, I mean, the, the one kid thought it was polar bear. So maybe, maybe Sasquatch, but other people have described these white humanoids as being kind of skinny mm-hmm. and, you know, the long armed and, you know, and such, but kind of really thin and, 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 you know, wraith looking. Um, so what are they seeing? You know, is it a, you know, Sasquatch, a white Sasquatch that's gone on hard times uh, that has a wasting disease or are they seeing something else altogether? Um, Um, You know, and and that's my question. It's certainly something that bears investigation because there's been enough of these kind of strange sightings that, uh, you know, something that I I would like to have the time to check out. Sure. Well, and there's there's even um, certain certain areas I know uh, in like the Wisconsin area and, and places like that um, that describe the Wendigo in the same way um, mm-hmm. or the rake uh, and, right. and things like that. Like I know in the here in the in the West, uh, descriptions of the Wendigo tend to be quite different. Um, but mm-hmm. I've you know I've heard that same depiction painted for for Wendigo as well. That there are these sort of you know almost alien looking long arms thin um so it's it's fascinating to me that these some of these descriptions seem to be just passed on you know and they have various labels but it Mm -hmm. almost sounds like everybody to a point might be seeing the same thing like is what do you think i think it's entirely possible um you know Everybody, you know, I won't say everybody, but a lot of people like to jump to the Sasquatch explanation because it's easier, I think. You know, if we say that there is some sort of uh, white wraith or rake-like entity wandering around out there, then we have to try to explain something else. Right. You know, it's not just a giant ape or a, a, a relic hominid. It's something completely different, and and again, we want we we wander quickly into the rabbit hole of not knowing what the heck this is. Is it you know some sort of a physical entity? Is it a, a being that's crossed from the other world that that is able to take a you know a physical form? Um, is it some kind of indigenous weird creature that lives in the you know the the wilderness? Um, we don't know. We don't know what it is. Um, and again, 
It's a mystery. It's the, that's the fun part about exploring these topics. Um, but, you know, it's entirely possible that, uh, you know, that there is a, uh, there is a creature upon which, say, the Wendigo lore is based, um, in which case it's a really scary thing and you want to avoid the heck out of it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. You know, or, or, or it may just be that, uh, you know, that this is something altogether different. Um, you know, the Wendigo is, is um, you know, I mean, as you say, there are a, a number of different kinds of descriptions of it, but uh, it does seem to fall in line with that whole uh, idea of a, a, an emaciated um, creature that's, you know, stalking the woods. I would think, though, that if these people had encountered a Wendigo, um, they wouldn't be telling us the story. <laughs> it's very possible. <laughs> you know, yeah. these some of these uh, some of the tales are just are, are just absolutely striking, and I'm, I'm mm -hmm. so glad you were able to compile so many of them. I know there's so many more, but we're so glad you were able to to compile them in, in this book. Um, our time is is winding down. We could talk to you forever. Uh, so we're going to have to do another episode because... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, sure. There is yeah, more. I, I'd, be, I'd be happy to come back. Uh, <laughs> you know, because I'm always... Uh, you know, it's one of the great pleasures of, of doing uh, doing these books and doing, you know, what I'm I'm able to do here is, you know, actually getting a chance to talk with people who are interested in this topic and, uh, you know, get some of these stories out there so that people are like, oh, hey, I didn't know about that. You know, because there's always something in the paranormal that you're like, uh, you know, it's like, oh, have you heard about Oswongs? <laughs> mm -hmm. It's a Filipino vampire thing. Oh, cool. Let's let's read about that. You know, there's always something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the the monster and and cryptid and and uh, paranormal lore out there is just incredibly varied and dense. And you know, I, I mean, as Mike was saying, there's you know, there's there's so many things that I wasn't able to cover. Um, you know, I, I had to to really kind of pick and choose my stories. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, who knows? There may be a Canadian Monsters and Mysteries volume too. Uh, after I finish up another couple of projects I'm working on. Um, oh, that's yeah. I'll sell. I'll sell that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll help you. I'll help you sell it on my other show. I mean, definitely because uh, you know, I, I grew up around uh, people with interest in these kind of things. My dad mm -hmm. was. Uh, is a bit of uh, a cynical skeptic when it comes to that stuff. But mm. his, his brother, my uncle Don, who moved here to BC, is really interested in the indigenous legend. And Canada mm -hmm. is so rich with that kind of thing. And Oh, yeah. And one of Don's, uh, my uncle's pet things is uh, the Thunderbird. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that that's something that I haven't done an episode about yet on my show that I really feel I should honor him and do that. Um, but there's so much, there's so much out there to sort of parse out and, uh, figure out what, what, what is, you know, what is it that's baloney and maybe what is it that people have really seen? Well, yeah, my take about that, uh, you know, as far as Thunderbirds go, um, it's very much the case that, uh, you know, again, one of the things that you encounter when, when you, are reading about, uh, you know, First Nations people and, and the stories that they are, are willing to tell is that they're very matter of fact about it. Mm. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, the, you know, that's a mammoth track. 
<laughs> it's yeah. like, or, yeah. or there are giant beavers living up in Manitoba. Um, you know. Okay, you have to tell us the beaver story before we go, or okay. everybody's going to yeah, write yeah, us. That. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so John Worms, uh, cryptozoologist uh, in Manitoba, wrote a, a terrific book called Strange Creatures Seldom Seen. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not. Um, it's kind of hard to get. Um, but he apparently had some good connections in the First Nations communities in Manitoba. And he was doing research on, uh, and I'm going to cut this down real a long way because it, it kind of meanders, but he was doing research on these giant, on these tunnels, these unusual tunnels that they were finding on the, on the First Nations reserves. Um, they were about, you know, three feet or more in diameter. Uh, they were smooth-sided. They looked like lava tubes, um, except there was no volcanic activity in that area. Hmm. So he consulted with geologists. He talked to these people and that people and all the experts. And nobody had any idea where these things came from. So he finally said to one of his First Nations friends, uh, do you have any idea where these tunnels come from? The guy looks at him and says, oh, yeah, that's where the giant snakes live. That's <laughs> He's like, um, okay. Uh, so he came to find out that there were, and again, there's a whole section in the book on this. There were a whole group of people in Manitoba that had seen these giant snakes, um, usually in or near the water, kind of very reminiscent of the, the giant snake stories that you see coming out of the Amazon, except it's in Canada mm -hmm. where snakes don't get more than four or five right. feet long. And we're talking about 20 foot plus snakes some of which have antlers. You know? It just gets better. So, it just gets better and better, right? So he's told, okay, well, uh, you know, the giant snakes live there, and, and he starts discovering that there are these giant snake stories, but he's still puzzled about the tunnels. He says, okay, well, that's, that's great. Giant snakes live in the tunnels. I could see that. They need a place to hibernate in the winter or whatever, right? He says, but snakes don't dig. You know, there are some snakes that, that can uh, shovel dirt with their noses and stuff, but they really can't dig tunnels. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. The snakes don't dig the tunnels. That's the giant beavers. <laughs> of course it is. And he's like, okay, there are giant beavers. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And so the native people in the area, again, tell him all of these stories about these beavers that are the size of bears. And tell him very matter-of-factly that they would, you know, that sometimes you, you go out hunting and you'll find a beaver lodge the size of a human house. And that's where giant beavers live, you know, and, and that there are people that have actually killed these things and skinned them and taken a pelt back and sold it. And, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a story about uh, some people that observed a giant beaver diving into the water and when the beaver went into the water all the fish in the pond went flying up out of the out of the the uh out of the pond like they were trying to escape from this thing so apparently giant beavers supplement their diet on fish um so all these there's a picture in the book of, of john worm standing next to a statue that somebody's carved with one of these things he's got his shoulder his arm draped around the shoulders of this beaver it's that tall Wow. Yeah. I love this. Now the <laughs> now the interesting the, the really interesting part about this is that there actually was a giant beaver. There was, yeah. It's called Castorides Ohio census. Right. Mm -hmm. Um that was about, you know, the size of a bear um that 
supposedly went extinct 10,000 or so years ago. So Which geologically, a, that's not a long time. No. Yeah. Geologically, that's not even a blink of the eye. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've already talked about the wood bison being able to, to, to hide itself in the forest for several decades. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I have to wonder if there's not a relic species of giant beaver wandering around in, in, uh, you know, in, in, uh, you know, the wilds of Canada. Uh, it's entirely possible, um, especially given how recently these creatures actually did exist. And there's plenty of food for them up there. Well, yeah. And what's what's so interesting about this this kind of a thing, you know, it, it's so easy to say, you know, giant beaver, you know, it's just, just so ridiculous. And yet here we are in you know in in different areas of you know places like indonesia and and you know these remote areas where people are finding completely new species of human mm-hmm. that might oh, yeah. still be around you know of course you got the the homo florensenses and whatnot and it's like you know there it very well might be that we still have a species of hobbit that's walking around mm-hmm. and you know and we don't we don't think about that as something that that's legitimate but it's it's absolutely legitimate. We now have archaeological evidence that says this this might be the case. And so you you really never know. And I, I tell you, I have learned within this this entire field that even when it, it sounds absolutely wacky, you have to give it its due because it mm-hmm. there has been stuff that I'm telling you over the last 20 years I've seen <laughs> that if you had asked me before... I would have said, "Oh hell no!" And you know, and yet there it is. So I, yeah, it's, it's well. So if true. you if you think about it, gorillas. The first gorilla uh-huh. skull was found in 1847, and yeah. they didn't really see one in the wild until 1850. Western people, right. one of the yeah. first right. cryptids. Yeah, yep, yeah, and, and and that's very much you know kind of the situation to run into with you know the Sasquatch and 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 First Nations people here in Canada. It's like they acknowledge that these creatures exist, you know, and they don't have a problem with it. They have mm-hmm. folklore about it. Uh, it. It's even become a part of their their religion in some cases and in, in some of the, the, the tribes. Um, you know, very much like the African people kept telling these European, you know, colonialists that there was this giant creature man-like creature that lived in in the the jungles of 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 the congo right and they were all like no no that couldn't possibly exist because we're europeans and we know everything right Mm -hmm. and um you know they had to eat crow and the gorilla was discovered back in the 1850s uh you know and i don't know that anybody's gonna have to eat crow about sasquatch um I'm not entirely convinced that Sasquatch is a flesh and blood entity or, or entirely flesh and blood. Um, but you know, it's still the possibility exists. And particularly as again, you know, we have so much wilderness here in Canada, there's plenty of places for, you know, a very large animal to live and flourish because we have grizzly bears, we have, you know, all kinds of large animals, bison, um, you know, other large predators, moose, uh, that's not a predator, but, you know, other large animals, <laughs> cougars. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. You run across a moose when it's got, uh, got its little critters with it and yeah. you're, you're in trouble. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I, I'm very much of the opinion that, uh, we need to do a better job of believing witnesses and not poo-pooing them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I call people who do that skeptibunkers. Um, yeah. Cause they really, you know, they're not really skeptics because they don't have an open mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they are intent on, you know, uh, proving or, or, you know, supporting their particular paradigm. And they're completely unwilling to, to listen to people who have views that are outside that paradigm. Um, you know, you were talking about quantum physics earlier, you know, even though, uh, you know, quantum mechanics is accepted science now, there are mm-hmm. still vast swaths of the scientific community that, you know, in the biology community, yeah. for instance, that, Especially you know, mm-hmm. don't believe it. You know, they're, they're, they're not acting as though quantum mechanics is something that translates into, uh, into everyday life, basically. Yeah. Um, and you know, why not? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been so fantastic. We are totally dragging you back to do another episode. <laughs> we're we're so not done. I mean, uh, there's so much more that I I I, know, I would love to touch on. I know Mike would love to touch on, uh, but. Tell everybody where they can find your books. We're going to post the links for everybody uh, on our social media and the show notes so that you can they can find them. Uh, but tell people where they can find you, where they can get your books if they're listening. Yeah, so all of the books for Beyond the Fray, including Morgan's book, oh, thank you. <laughs> books, books um, are available on Amazon. Um, they are been available both as Kindle and uh, as paperbacks. Um, and uh, if you happen to subscribe to Kindle Unlimited, they're available through KU. So um, there's no excuse for not reading our book, <laughs> our books. Um, <laughs> so uh, so th- that's that's where they're available. Um, people that want to, um, uh, you know, follow me on social media, um, I believe you guys are going to post we links yep. for the mm-hmm. show notes. Yeah. Um, so I'm available on Facebook, uh, Instagram and Twitter. Um, and I love to hear from people who've read the books, who want to talk about the books, who want to tell me about their witness sighting, their witness encounters, um, any of that kind of stuff. I, I had a, a fellow who um, I talked about in Mysteries of the Mist, um, uh, who actually encountered a pterodactyl in the mist, um, got knocked off of a surfboard. <laughs> and, uh, he actually contacted me. His, the, the person that the story was about actually contacted me and we very had a chance cool. to, to correspond. It was very cool. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. And we are going to do this again. <laughs> so thank you for being here. Oh, absolutely. It was tons of fun. And, and I, I would be honored to, to come back and, and do a volume two here. And then we have to talk about Sasquatches later on. That's right. It's a done deal. <laughs> yeah, I, the, that book is due in December, um, and I, it's on on course for uh, making deadline and possibly a little before that. So awesome! Uh, I will. Uh, I'll keep you guys posted. Great. Cool. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called Revise the Day. How many times have you gone to bed and played over the day's events in hopes that somehow you'll arrive at a different outcome? We wish we could have said this or that, or you should have done this or gone there instead. 
We all do it. And usually, worry is simply, well, it's a bad use of imagination. It gets us nowhere. It doesn't actually change anything. And in fact, it robs us of our peace in the moment. What if you use that energy to revise your day instead? Take some time and sit quietly. Go back to your morning and imagine how you wanted the day to feel. Leave behind the facts of how it was or what happened. Then, moment by moment, begin revising the day in the most ideal way possible. Rewrite those words, those moments, and relish in how it would feel if you had the outcome you wished to have. When you get to the moment you're in bed for the night, imagine how you would feel if your day had have played out that way. Relish in the feeling as if you had it, as if you had it right now. Let it not be simple wishful thinking, but a state of mind that when focused upon will allow for a better night's sleep and the ability to let go of many of the day's troubles. It's not about ignoring the facts. It's about bringing yourself to the feeling place of having had a better day so that you can start on a better, fresh foot the next. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now. <laughs>